listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. I am pleased you could join us for our discussion on China and commodities. I am Camilla Sutton, Managing Director in Equity Research, and today I am joined by BMO Capital Markets' Colin Hamilton, Managing Director, Commodity Research. Colin, I have been looking forward to this discussion for some time. We are starting with your views on China, and we're going to close out with how you would position in metal markets in 2021 and beyond. So let's kick it off talking about China's recent NPC meeting, which you have called the most important event for industrial markets this year. Why is it so important? Oh, thank you, Camilla. Well, China's NPC meeting is an annual event. It sets out economic policy and the principles which the economy will follow over the year. And for me, it's a great window of insight into Beijing's thinking. And what's particularly important about it this year is that concurrent with this is the release and the signing off of the 14th five-year plan. This is giving us guidance for the threads that will run through the economy and and China's development over the coming five years. So it's like getting five-year guidance. So it's very useful in that regard. It also gives a sign to the buzzwords which are used, which are really the key areas to focus on as to how markets may develop and also where some of the opportunities may lie. China is, of course, the world's uh, second largest economy. It's the world's largest industrial economy. And in my markets, we have more than 50% of steel, of copper, of aluminium, uh, of nickel were consumed in China last year. So in my my view, you get China right, and particularly China demand, where you go a long way to getting commodity markets right. I'd also highlight that China tends to lead industrial cycles. So what happens in that economy? Well, it gives us uh, an insight as to what may happen in other economies slightly further down the line. So that's interesting. So what what we see now is that China went through and emerged from the economic shocks from COVID before any of the other nations. So where does it leave its economy now? That's a very good point. One year ago, of course, China was only just starting to open up its economy, just as everyone else was starting to go into a a full lockdown. And it's important to note what happened from an economic policy perspective there. The nature of the way China operates, there is a shortcut to policy. Basically, the government can tell the banks who to lend to, how much to lend. And what happened last year was they pulled the infrastructure and fixed asset investment lever extremely hard. This is what happens when push comes to shove. Uh, Obviously, longer term, there's a need to get the consumption side of the economy up and running. But in the short term, if needs must, it's a return to fixed asset investment. And that had a, a very sharp impact, a very quick impact, and it was a key element of why the industrial downturn we've seen uh, last year was, it was sharp, but it was very short. And already we're back to global industrial production growth uh, above pre-COVID levels. I would say we're at the stage in China where so far we've seen an element of reflation. Reflation is good for that economy. There's a high level of corporate debt. Reflation helps service that. We're now getting to the point where we are starting to run into inflationary bottlenecks. This unbalanced nature of the growth recovery we've seen, well, it's, it's caused problems. Uh, just highlight a few. Power. Uh, China was short of power earlier in the year. Coal prices, LNG prices surged. Pulp. We have a, a, an export economy where people are, are, are sending goods to the rest of the world. 
the pulp markets are extremely tight. Of course, semiconductors impacting on, on production of autos and other areas. And containers, uh, as the world's largest global trading partner, well, the container market has been getting tight. So you've seen these become inflationary bottlenecks. The PBOC, the, the central bank, already says the economy is running at p- potential. And, and when you get that, you tend to see them press back on the brake pedal a little bit. What we've seen over time is Chinese policy is often quite counter-cyclical to that seen in the rest of the world. And we're already starting to see monetary policy normalised. They're aiming to deflate asset bubbles, and I would say two that are in focus are the equity markets and the property market. And it's interesting to note that now on property, it's very targeted, and we're starting to see a situation where property tightening measures will take place when uh, house prices are rising in advance of disposable income rises. So there's a clear uh, pathway now to when tightening will take place. And then if we come to the fiscal side, Well, I would flag that the key thing here is whether China can get the consumer going. Uh, The consumer has certainly lagged in this overall Chinese recovery. And now we're announcing policies to try and boost consumption in autos, in appliances, in in catering and and, and cooking equipment, and just to try and get that consumer dollar spent again. Now, the, the more that is successful, the more they can pull back on the uh, the fixed asset investment impulse that we have seen. And uh, that, that is important for metals markets because the fixed asset investment impulse was a very metals intensive one. So we're definitely at the point now where we're starting to see uh, a normalization of monetary policy and a bit of a tapering of, of fiscal policy coming through. It's quite incredible considering the shock that they went through with COVID. So on a different note, one of the key takeaways from the MPC was new targets aimed at reducing emissions. How serious do you think China is about decarbonizing its economy? I would say I'm rarely blindsided by Chinese policy changes. But the the announcement that came out last year uh, to say that we are working towards peaking carbon emissions by 2030, so peaking them this decade, and then to carbon neutrality by 2060, well, that did take me by surprise. But the fact is it came from President Xi himself. And with that, a target is set and the whole economy really will be working towards it now. A bit of background, of course, China has a pollution problem, has had for a number of years. It's also become increasingly obvious to the domestic population over the past few years, particularly in a world of of social media. I would also say China has a perception problem. It is the world's largest user of coal, and the Chinese hierarchy knows the world is heading towards carbon borders. And with that, it knows it needs to come up with a strategy to adjust to that. What do we see now? Decarbonisation has now been built into the targets for this 14th five-year plan, and that's at a provincial and at an industry level. It's now in the KPIs. So if you're a provincial official and you want to move up the chain, well, you better meet your carbon uh, emission reduction targets. And in fact, we've already seen in the province of Inner Mongolia, uh, they've they've basically seen some central government intervention for missing their previous energy consumption reduction targets. So with that, I think it's very, very serious. And uh, I think it is a big change of approach uh, in that Chinese economy. Colin, can you dig deeper on that? What sectors will push towards peak carbon emissions impact most? Yeah, it's it's very important. I mean, uh, and to put it in context, China's talking about uh, dropping carbon emissions by about 18% per unit of GDP over the coming five years, which is more or less matching what we've seen over, over the previous five. Now, a quick Pareto analysis gets you to to areas pretty quickly, and you're basically looking at what burns coal. 
power sector, of course, and I'll, I'll come back to that uh, in a minute, but also steel, aluminium, cement. Uh, if we put those uh, sectors up, they're pretty high in terms of the, uh, the emissions side. So what are we likely to see in terms of uh, these targets? Well, as we move towards carbon neutrality, we're going to start seeing cuts coming through. Um, I talked about Inner Mongolia before. What's interesting there, they're actually a big miner of Bitcoin. And uh, that's an easy one for the Chinese government, given that technically uh, it's illegal in the country, but it's a very energy intensive exercise. So anything that looks uh, like it's energy intensive will see pressure. We're seeing a big clamp down on steel capacity. And I do think now that you're going to see more and more pressure on blast furnaces to be closed. And you'll see them replaced uh, increasingly by electric art furnaces, particularly now that China is now an electricity long country. The other thing I think you'll see in, in that and to help drive that is accelerated state-owned enterprise reform. I also believe that if we look at the steel industry, let's take the steel industry for a minute, there'll be a big push to recover scraps or recover secondary material. To put it in context, across metals markets, it is the quickest and easiest way to reduce carbon emissions from the sector is to use more secondary material. So you will see uh, a lot of the, the scrap collection and processing is an area where you'll see heavy investment. The other area I would look at on the steel side, I do believe that China can be a leader in green steel, and that may be based on uh, hydrogen-enriched uh, direct reduced iron output. So importing iron ore, uh, using gas and hydrogen-enriched gas uh, to uh, convert that to iron, which can then go into a steel-making furnace. The other industry I think there'll be a big impact on is the aluminium industry. 86% of China's aluminium is coal-powered at the moment, but you're seeing a big shift to Yunnan province in the southwest, which is hydro-powered. So you're seeing capacity basically uh, ripped up by its roots, moved to that area. Uh, so that is, again, the key, a key element of that in, in uh, allowing Chinese material to be accepted in a world of carbon borders. I also think there'll be further pressure on uh, and maybe some uh, operating limits in any given year for, for the coal-fired capacity there. That's important because it could start to change trade flows. Uh, and it's a bit of a developed world precedent here whereby China may start to import, go from importing raw materials to importing some semi-finished goods, which is what happens in the US, uh, Canada, Europe, and then adding value to those and maybe exporting a bit less of the higher value add product. So it's a little bit of a change in the, the Chinese commodity business model, but it does mean that for things like steel and aluminium, trade flows, global trade flows may well change. So let's shift gears a little bit here. Are there any longer term dynamics you think are starting to influence Chinese policy that could have wider global impacts? That, uh, that's a very interesting question. So I, I can think of a few. Um, one of the buzzwords we heard at the NPC was rural revitalization. Uh, this is really a, a key thread running through a lot of the releases we saw around the NPC. It's about boosting rural consumption. Essentially, it's the next chapter of the, the Chinese poverty alleviation strategy. The key thing here is um, reducing income disparity, which is uh, uh, obviously a thing that can cause tension, particularly in, in a command economy structure. I would say what we're likely to see, and, and the, there's a pathway here where the government will take money from urban land sales and push that into spending on rural infrastructure. And as a result of that, it will increase rural disposable income. It will allow farmers to monetize land. Very important because you have an aging farmer demographic. 
And that allows for other things like agricultural supply side reform. So with that, you'll see much more cooperative farming. It will allow a lot more fertilizer application uh, when you have larger land plots. So I think there's some interesting developments that, that may come through there on the, on the ag- agricultural side. Another area we're seeing is a bit more financial market opening in China. That's been an area that has not been, uh, it's been very a closed financial economy. And I think uh, over time, if we look at China's uh, had an influence on a lot of markets, one market maybe Beijing's understood a little bit less is how financial markets operate. But you are now going to see uh, that opening up a lot more. And what will be interesting, uh, there's increasing expectation that a digital RMB, uh, effectively China's state-owned cryptocurrency, may form a play po- uh, a key part in that. It will allow them to get greater visibility on where spending is going and greater control of fiscal revenues, which is uh, very important when there is a, a large fiscal gap. And uh, the last point I would like to make in uh, here is about investment and innovation. It's an area where uh, the Chinese economy has certainly lagged over uh, recent years, but technology and innovation were highly referenced during the MPC meeting. Technological independence uh, is a a key long-term priority, and I would say it's been highlighted even more recently by the the global shortage of semiconductor chips, and that's hampered output across China's manufacturing sector. So with that, um, there's a target announced of 3.76 trillion RMB of R&D spending by 2025, and that is uh, decently higher than the last five-year plan period. Which areas do I think this might focus on? Self-driving cars is one. Uh, new new energy vehicles, where China's already leading the way in both uh, battery and cathode production and indeed the cars themselves. Robotics, uh, military technology. And then if we think of the commodity side, I think uh, carbon capture and sequestration is an area where you will see a lot of Chinese investment. It plays into that decarbonization theme. And also some of these key global thematics, hydrogen, uh, China's investing hard there. In fact, there is already hydrogen hubs in a number of cities to try and uh, pilot test the technology. And also on the solar side, I do think you'll see a lot of these uh, land long GDP light provinces in the west of China uh, become renewable energy hubs. And I think in terms of in the solar industry, there's still a bit of a, a technology war going on, a bit of a battle to see which uh, which of the, the technologies will win out in the end. But as part of that, you will see costs for solar technology continue to fall and it will become increasingly uh, competitive against uh, fossil fuels now on, on a levelized cost of electricity basis, not just in China, but that will go globally. So Colin, there's a new phrase that I feel like we're starting to hear a lot about when it comes to China, and that's dual circulation. Can you discuss what this means and how it could impact commodity market trade flows? Yes, uh, thanks. Well, this is a phrase we started hearing around the middle of last year, uh, and it was in China's response to a certain extent of, of being uh, of being wary of being cut off from uh, global financial markets and the global trade flows as geopolitical risk rose. So, uh, the MPC session uh, there was a number of references to dual circulation strategy, but the specific focus here, and when it says dual circulation, it means well, yes, we will still trade with the rest of the world. But we really need to focus on expanding domestic demand within the framework of a, a new development pattern and therefore reduce reliance on foreign markets. So this is about self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency in food, self-sufficiency in energy. Again, renewable energy plays a, a major role in, in that. And again, reducing reliance on some of these foreign markets, particularly the US, in fact, by raising the collective per capita income. So it goes hand in hand a lot with the rural revitalization 
we talked about before. And it's going to shift China away a bit from its export-led model that we've seen over the past 20 years. It's not to say China's not going to promote trade as a central element uh, in terms of long-term objectives. But on the whole, um, we would still expect China to try and influence security of supply through raw materials from other regions. So China will still trade with the rest of the world. And in commodity markets, I would still be expecting uh, China to seek out uh, assets in those commodities where it's not geologically blessed with, I'd highlight nickel, copper, uh, the platinum group metals, where China's still a heavy importer. But it could also mean that uh, we may see less Chinese exports of certain things, rare earths, for example, uh, aluminium, gallium, magnesium. We may see less of these materials pushed out into global markets. And that could create some, uh, some bottlenecks for the rest of the world. So dual circulation is a bit of a philosophy. It's still in its early stages, but it's mainly about driving a larger Chinese domestic market. So while we're talking about trade, what impacts is the China-Australia trade fraction having? And are there other countries that could be at risk? The, the disagreements between China and Australia have certainly been played out in commodity markets and commodities naturally at the, the forefront of global trade. So the fact that uh, China is no longer importing coal, copper concentrate, various other goods from Australia is creating some dislocations in markets. Uh, we are seeing some trade flow shifts, obviously. Australian material pushing into elsewhere, Australian coal pushing into the Atlantic Basin. But then we have coal from US and Canada, from North America, going into China more so than before. So it's, it's creating, as I say, these dislocations. I think it was a bit of a pilot case uh, for China to see if they could live without a, a certain supply from a large trading partner and what influence that might have on their, their wider markets. There was some constraints uh, caused by it. It certainly um, exacerbated the thermal coal shortage that China had earlier in the year but they were willing to live with it and we didn't see any change of tack. And what is important to note, of course, is it was very selective. Um, China's still taking Australian iron ore. In fact, Australian iron ore is 60% of China's supply. That is too strategic for both economies to live without that trade flow. Also, liquefied natural gas, uh, uh, still very large quantities of Australian LNG head to China. So it was very selective, but what is interesting, uh, it does show that China's willing to, to rattle the sabre a bit of it and, and maybe um, use its dominant position in commodity trade flows uh, to get a message across. Are there other countries at risk? That's an interesting question because we've obviously seen a lot of what's been termed wolf warrior diplomacy from China over the past 12 months uh, not sitting particularly well. I think rather than countries at risk, there might be episodes of, of targeted buyer strikes normally around geopolitical events or, or maybe comments that are made around Taiwan or Xinjiang. Um, if I was to give a couple of catalysts just to watch for in terms of that geopolitical risk, it's the, it's the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party on July the 1st. They want to be shown to be strong into that from a political standpoint. Also, China's hosting the Winter Olympics next year, which uh, uh, will probably raise a lot of questions around a number of things. So, Look out for these occasional dislocations, but I don't expect any spectacular changes to trade flows. Colin, I can't possibly let you go with us. without asking you, where would you position in metal markets over the rest of 2021 and even farther beyond that? It's a great question, given now there's obviously a lot of talk about a commodities super cycle at the moment. Um, for metals, China, well, it's, it's not the be all and end all, but it is the most important consumer. 
And I would highlight that China is starting to tighten. That makes me a little bit cautious, a little bit defensive, if you want, on the rest of uh, on commodity pricing for the rest of 2021. What may do a little bit better? I would highlight stainless steel. Um, so what we're likely to see is a, a fall in Chinese investment, but stronger consumption. Well, stainless steel is better hedged between the industrial and consumer economies uh, due to its use in, in consumer goods. And that may help to support nickel demand relative to other base metals over the rest of the year, particularly actually following the recent sell-off in price that we've seen. We would see the price roughly flat on a six-month view. We have most other base metals lower. One commodity sector that's actually lagged in the industrial recovery has been battery raw materials. We've seen them start to move over the past three months. I still think there's a little bit more uh, runway there for, for things like lithium and cobalt. But as the industrial side starts to falter a little into the second half of the year, I do think that precious metals will naturally hold up better than their industrial peers. I would also highlight in the steel side, I do think that the coking coal price will be higher six months from now. Where's my view changed a little bit? Steel and aluminium, um, two sectors with oversupply um, and, and what looked to be trend oversupply. But we are now seeing, as I talked about before, this change in Chinese stance and this restriction of capacity coming through. I don't expect the current prices we have to last, but less Chinese exports does help medium-term dynamics in both those fields. And if I look longer term, well, obviously exposure to the energy transition helps. Every commodity analyst loves copper, and for good reason. We've got a a constrained supply side and very positive demand side with uh, electric vehicles, renewable energy more copper-intensive than the current incumbents in both those fields. Nickel, uh, both of the stainless steel and the battery side, we see as growing uh, quite significantly on the demand side over the coming years. And even things like uh, uranium uh, and platinum, on a longer-term basis, this may not be overnight stories, but on a longer-term basis, both of those play a a key role in a move towards a carbon-free economy or carbon-neutral economy. I'd also highlight that from an equity standpoint, Areas like gold and iron ore, while we uh, pricing maybe under a little bit of pressure in the near term, at or around these price levels or even slightly below, still very strong industry margin, record industry margin in both gold and iron ore we expect for 2021 for the incumbent producers. And that should help to generate uh, ongoing cash return to shareholders. Thank you, Colin. We've covered an incredible amount of ground today. I really appreciate it. BMO Capital Markets is proud to be able to deliver thoughtful analysis on commodity markets that is critically important to our clients. If you've enjoyed today's Intune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.